Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel as we are continuing with our Fixed Income Roundtable series of conversations with the UBS Chief Investment Office. The team today will talk about drivers behind recent asset class performance, positioning, as well as a near-term outlook. We are joined by Barry McAlinden, Frank Saleo, Alina Gallant, Kathleen McNamara, as well as Sangita Marfadia. Moderating today's roundtable, glad to welcome back the head of taxable fixed income strategy for the Americas, Leslie Falconio. With that, Leslie, welcome back. Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's roundtable. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. And this is our fourth um, roundtable, and I, we definitely appreciate the support. And you know, it's always a great time to you know, get the thoughts of our sector specialists. So in this podcast, what we wanted to do was review part of the past six months, but more importantly, you know, take a look ahead of what we're thinking in the second half of the year and possibly discuss some of those tailwinds and headwinds that we might see for the rest of 2023. And just as, you know, as a quick recap, you know, as we know, the word of 2023 is is the word resilient. And as we entered into the year, CIO and UBS was one of those in one of those uh, sectors or uh, or institutions that really had felt that the economy would likely slow in the first half, you know. And and what the, what has occurred since then, as the as the underestimation of the buffer within the consumer, the strengthening labor market, you know, the magnitude that inflation has actually fallen, that's really led to this tailwind um, into economy that really has a lot of strength behind it. Now, the question is how long this is going to last, and that is a, really has is a, is a difficult question to answer because it does really rely on the consumer and consumer demand. But when we think about <clears throat> where, we're, where we've been in terms of our message and focus and how we've been allocated within fixed income, you know, we, we have moved towards this and, and have maintained, you know, this, the, up in quality type of allocation. We have always believed that the Fed would be higher for longer, and now the market has adjusted to that point of view. And as we look ahead, we're going to see some. We are going to see some disparities in our opinion of what the market is pricing in in 2024 in terms of easing. But there's no question that the resiliency that this economy has had has really surprised us in the first half of the year. And now we have to take a look at. You know, what will drive total returns in terms of not just in 23, but in, in also parts of 2024? We know that's going to be the yield that we're earning and the carry investors can earn. And now when we think about a slowing economy, as we have this lagged impact from the Fed and the consumer going through that buffer of fiscal and monetary stimulus and really focusing on higher credit card rates, higher mortgage rates, you know, <clears throat> just in terms of the higher interest rates that they're going to have to pay and the amount of time that might take to slow the economy. Now, one benefit of the the higher quality type assets is, as we sort of are what we call this fork in the road, but do we have a a soft landing or hard landing? If you look historically over the past seven times the Fed has been through this tightening cycle, even during the times in 84 and 95 when it was a soft landing, you know, for a fixed income perspective, it really doesn't matter, and I mean, particularly for higher quality. When I say that, I'm talking about the fact that the returns that we see after the Fed pauses and the decline in interest rates has really been a talent to total return, particularly when you're looking at versus some of those cash offs like money market. But let's sort of get into our sector specialists. And again, as we know, investment-grade corporates has been one of our 
um, most preferred sectors and our higher quality themes. So I did want to start with start off with Barry McElinden, who who is, our, is not only our investment grade expert, but also focuses heavily on the financials as well. And and as we review the first half of the year, we know that's been a spotlight. So, so Barry, how would you sort of the first question to you is how was the first six months um, different than what you expected in terms of return and performance? Yeah, thanks, Leslie. I think for the first six months, though, investment-grade corporates had a total return of 3.2%. What might be a little different than expected is, so 2% of that came from the carry or the coupon income. And maybe investors might have thought, you know, know, more of that would have come from uh, the carry, given that IG yields are above 5%. You know, presently, they're 5.4%. But I think, you know, we have to remember that it takes time for those higher coupons to seep through into the existing stock of bonds that exist in the marketplace. So we have seen average coupons rise. They're now at 4% for investment-grade corporates, up from a low of 3.6 in 2022 um, and early 22. And it's gonna, that's going to be a gradual process by which the coupon continued to rises. But we do think that the income will again, provide an important um, part of the total return uh, going forward. Um, so, so that's been uh, one element of surprise. And I think secondly, you know, in terms of uh, risks entering the year, um, we did see, um, you know, a big risk in the form of the uh, the regional bank uh, crisis that occurred in March really emanated from the investment-grade asset class, but yet um, it still actually appreciated over that period, even though you had, you know, kind of a knee-jerk risk-off reaction in the marketplace because of the duration uh, of, of uh, investment grade that it exhibits. Um, we actually had some appreciation during that period. So, so those are kind of two things that I would point to that were maybe a little bit unexpected during the first six months of the year. So when we th- when you think about that, Barry, and, th- and thank you for that, and, and, as, and as we know, as we look to the second half of the year and, you know, the the – well, what occurred in March with the financial instability and what was originally thought of as a banking crisis, and for any of us, for all of us on this call that have been in the business long enough, are very well aware that that was no crisis, and partly it was because of the quick reaction to the Fed. But when you think about sort of like the these returns going forward, and as in fact we have, you know, you know, not necessarily recession, but an obvious slowdown in growth. How do you think, you know, the the sector is going to perform in the second half of the year, and what sort of you know, pockets of vulnerability would you look out for? I think, as you mentioned in the intro, I think with this fork in the road, either a soft landing or a more severe recession, you could see investment grade perform, you know, well in, in either scenario. Um, ironically, it, it, I think it might even be like the, the stronger economy scenario where investment grade might face the most headwinds because uh, that's when, you know, we might have a greater interest rate volatility uh, or also, you know, you might see something else um, kind of quote unquote break in the marketplace, you know, based on kind of that higher for longer cost. Um, but in either way, um, you know, and this is behind CIO's most preferred view of the asset class is that we really, you know, with this fork in the road, think that your performance should still be kind of this carry plus environment where you get the coupon income with some potential for, you know, modest price gains over a 12 and 18 month period as the overall uh, interest rate backdrop for fixed income is one where where treasury yields uh, eventually decline. I would point out within, you know, the asset class, and I know, Leslie, uh, you've talked about this repeatedly, you know, that the value in investment grade, it's not from the spreads. 
uh, at the overall index level. Uh, so at 128 basis points, we're only at the 40th percentile going back since the beginning of 2010. But it, it, it really stems from the yield uh, that's attainable. So the, the yield at the index level is at 5.4%. Um, this is about the average that we've witnessed uh, during the first half of this year. But going back over longer time periods, you know, we're close to the highs that we've been at uh, since like 2009 is the last time we've had IG yields at this level. And then just to put it into perspective, though, um, yields at this level for, let's say, investors who maybe focus on like one to 10 year investment grade corporate ladders. Um, so the yield, the overall yield is about 5.4%. The duration is about four years. At this yield level, it would take a rise up to about a 6.8% yield in order to produce a zero total return over 12 months. And that's more like kind of a, a crisis-like situation, I think, that we would see that happen. So, you know, the, the potential for negative returns has lessened uh, pretty substantially, you know, at these at these yield levels. And then just to get a little bit more specific in terms of, you know, our, our thoughts on curve positioning, we do like both, you know, the short end and intermediate maturities. And I think when you think about the short end being the one to three year, because of this inversion in the uh, treasury curve, you, you do also get the highest yield attainable in investment grade corporates on this one to three year point of about 5.7%. Now you go out to intermediate duration seven to 10 year, uh, and you're, you're giving up about three basis points of carry down to about 5.4%. Um, but consider if you do the same thing in a treasury market, you're losing like a hundred basis points of carry in treasuries. So you're losing less carry in investment grades to go out to intermediate, but you still can capture a lot of the benefit that that higher duration, I think, you know, should offer over time, uh, if we're in more of a, um, you know, declining yield uh, environment for, for treasury rates. Uh, so I think, you know, that that's one thing we'd point out on the curve positioning. And then, you know, secondly, as it relates to um, kind of dispersion within investment grade, um, the, the, the big differential that we're seeing is still financials versus industrials. Um, so financial spreads are about their, at their 50th uh, percentile overall. Uh, going back to early 2010, industrials are um, a lot lower, only about the, the 20th percentile. So the, the the value from a sector basis is really in financials. It's in it's in banks. Um, so we do continue to light that that sector from a evaluation point of view, especially after you know more positive signposts that we just received this week from their um, their earnings results. Um, with that said, though, I, I, I would point out that, we, you know, we, we do like diversification among sectors. And, you know, one uh, report that we um, continue to maintain is called um, Quality Investment Grade Credits Presenting an Income Opportunity. So we do present some individual bond issues among uh, quality credits that we define, you know, as having strong balance sheets, strong liquidity, resilient business profiles, um, and, uh, you know, having kind of a diversified group within that segment segment we think also um, should do well for investors over time. Okay, great, great, Barry. Thank you. And just to, just to summarize just a lot of what you just said is that, you know, and, and as, we, as we've all have written about, our view is that we have preferred weighting investment grade corporates, but it's our, the tailwind to total return will not be from spread compression because we're, as we, as we talked about, we're about 128, that's the 40th percentile, but the tailwind is going to be from the yield that it earns, which is near the 70th 
70% to about 5.5%. We like the barbell strategy because the yield curve is inverted. We're going to take part of that short end. We're also going to recognize that we're starting at the end of the cycle, and you do not need to have a hard landing for yields to come down or even to for a, a potential overvalued equity market to begin to correct. So we start to lock in for longer here as well. So that's that's great, Barry, and I, and I appreciate um, the, the recap and your thoughts. And now I want to switch to um, you know Kathleen McNamara, who's who actually has to wear two both on the taxable and tax-exempt muni side. And, again, part of this is also, you know, with our, you know, higher quality, high-grade theme. So, you know, Kathleen, I want to start out with you as well, is that when you think about, you know, the, the first six months of the year um, and, your, and our original expectations versus how the returns actually panned out in both the exempt and, and non-exempt type sectors. Uh, sure, Leslie. I mean, in, in the first half of 2023, I mean, as you know, there was certainly no shortage of external factors that influenced the price behavior of the muni market. You know, we had a more hawkish Fed. We also had a regional banking crisis that did prompt some muni portfolio liquidations by some financial institutions. And, of course, last-minute debt ceiling negotiations all represented headwinds for the municipal bond sector. That said, munis did prove resilience and finished the first half of the year pretty strong. As a point of reference, if I look at the yield on the muni index today, it's hovering around the 3.5% level, which is only a few basis points different than where it stood in early January. Of course, we did have lots of episodes of volatility in between. You know, that said, on a total return base, the tax exempt sector had posted positive results through the first half, gaining close to 3%. You know, if I compare that to an index of U.S. Treasury debt, uh, that sector registered some softer gains of about 1.6%. I do attribute that outperformance from muni versus treasuries in large part to a much larger um, decline in new issuance than we expected. Um, as a matter of fact, the issuance was down about 20% um, from the year before's levels. You know, we were not expecting a drop-off of that magnitude. And again, I mean, that, that drop-off was, was really related to the volatility around the Fed and, and also that, you know, short-lived regional banking crisis that we confronted. But all in all, the sector did very well for that first half. So when you think about, um, you know, this the second half of the year, and again, just, to, you know, this which is because of we're in a bit of what we consider no man's land here because we have the debate of a hard landing and soft landing and you could point to several types of economic data on both sides. But when you think about going into the second half of the year, you know, what are the tailwinds alongside the potential pockets of vulnerability do you think um, that you're looking out for in terms of performance of municipals uh, during the rest of 23? Uh, sure, Leslie. I mean, as the second half ramps up, we see munis continuing to benefit from a favorable technical backdrop where the pace of redemptions exceeds the supply available. This is a seasonal summertime trend, and this year's pattern is proving to be no exception. Therefore, I do think some valuations are apt to reach some of the tightest municipal to treasury yield ratios of the year um, in the next couple of weeks before reversing course to some cheaper levels in the fall. Away from the supply and demand dynamics that, you know, impacts the meaning market greatly, um, I'd say range-bound or even lower U.S. Treasury yield between now and year-end is supportive to muni performance, you know, so that, that represents a good tailwind. Um, on the risk side, barring, you know, any unanticipated sharp in Treasury yields, um, we do think that the muni index is on track to post an annual return of about 5%. And, and if, if that does occur, that could reverse a good portion of the large losses that we saw back in 2022. Um, I'd say moving to the credit front, uh, we are, you know, retaining that preference for high quality bonds, as you were talking about earlier. 
as well as Barry in his sector. You know, although the prospects of a recession may be softening a little bit, what I'm seeing here in Muni's is that credit quality spreads are still probably tighter than they should be, just simply because of that sharp fall-off in issuance I mentioned earlier. Therefore, we still like that staying up in credit quality for now. Our credit team sees opportunities in municipal electric utilities, state governments, and essential service water and sewer debt. As a point of reference in terms of um, absolute yield levels, you know, yields on high-quality, longer-dated 20-year muni sits at about 3.5%. Uh, by comparison, that's about 220 basis points higher than the all-time low that we saw exactly two years ago. July of 2021 was the all-time low of just 1.3%. But if you look at 3.5%, maybe it doesn't sound so exciting. However, if you do... Um, you know, for investors in a state with a high personal income tax rate, such as New York or California, the tax equivalent yields on those high-quality unions, again, you don't have to drop down in credit quality, that tax equivalent yield can exceed 7%. And, you know, that suggests to us a very good entry point for investors with long-term time horizons. Great, Kathleen. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you quote the July 2020, 2020, 2021 yield. It's mm-hmm. this reminder of how quickly interest rates rose in 2022 and what a headwind, headwind that was to risk assets and particularly to higher quality sectors. So thank you for that. And now I, I just want to take a little switch. As we move from higher quality sectors, I want to go to, to those sectors that are a little bit more, you know, embedded credit risk and, and you know, tap into a lean here for um, particularly high yield. And for those on the phone or on the podcast that remember that there was a point in time when the CIO had a least preferred and high yield that we um, had covered in April, fortunately. Um, and, you know, Lean, I'm sure as you will explain, when we think of things like don't fight the Fed, it's apparently don't fight the credit market, particularly as with the spreads that we're sitting in right now and how well the sector is done. But I'm going to start with you in terms of, you know, what, you know, in the first six months of 2023, you know, what surprises did you see or what surprised you most in terms of the performance of the high-yield sector for the first half of the year? Thanks, Leslie. Um, yeah, the total return for the high-yield market has been incredibly strong this year. High-yield returned 6.7% year-to-date. Now, what's been even more fascinating is that the lowest quality of the high-yield market has maturely outperformed. Triple C's returned 11.5% while double Bs and single Bs returned 5.4% and 7% respectively. So much of this good performance uh, has really been driven by tighter spreads, and I think that was something that um, was a bit unexpected. High-yield spreads are 91 basis points tighter this year. Triple C spreads are 250 basis points tighter and are hovering around year-to-date lows. So a surprise tailwind has been the resilience of the economy, as you mentioned in your opening remarks, but also the strength of the credit metrics. We started this year with very strong credit fundamentals. Uh, Our net leverage for the high-yield market was at 10-year lows coming into this year. Interest coverage was at all-time highs. And so these metrics are declining now, and default rates are rising slightly, but because we started at such a strong peak and the economy held in better, high-yield credit has really been quite resilient. 
And, and I think <clears throat> that that's you said something you know very important in terms of some of these you know credit metrics, and particularly coming in the year. And one of them, as we know, is that you know high yield started the year with some with a very low dollar price. You know, particularly in you know the the, the triple C sector. So that's definitely been a, a tailwind to the total return. But when you think about the second half of the year now, and you look at these credit metrics, given the fact that you know spreads are at the 30th percentile, then because this compression and spread, the yields are not quite as attractive as they were, say, a month or two ago. So what do you see in terms of that for the next six months, given the fact that obviously the yields are ample but not quite as robust as they were just a month and a half ago? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, when I think about the high-yield market or any market for that matter, you really have to think about what is already priced in. And so when we look at spreads today, we're at 390 basis points, roughly. We're already pricing in a lot of good news and continued economic strength. And while, let's be honest, there really isn't a clear catalyst right now to take us materially wider, but there are certainly some headwinds ahead. So those credit metrics that we mentioned just a little bit ago, those are weakening now. And default rates, they rose from 1% a year ago to 3.2% today. So that is really quite a big move, and we think that they're likely to continue to rise from here. The new issue market, it has been open uh, for better quality companies in particular, but lower quality companies are still having a more difficult time accessing the market. And as this higher for longer interest rate environment takes hold, we think that more companies are going to have to refinance debt at higher rates, and so that's going to lead to this continued pressure on their credit metrics going forward. So overall, we are neutral on high yield into the second half, and that's mainly because a lot of the good news is already priced in at these levels, and as you said, yields are no longer as robust and as attractive as they were before. Um, and we do see some of these challenges ahead which is offset by, you know, the still high yield, the 8.3% yield that you're still getting in carry in the market. Now, having said all that, I do want to point out that we do think that there are opportunities within the high yield market itself. Investors can take advantage of some relative value opportunities as there are dislocations given, um, you know, all of the market moves that we've had over the past two years. And we recently initiated a theme on short-duration high-yield bonds, which we think can be attractive for investors as well. Great, Alina. Thank you. Appreciate that. And, and now that we've, you know, during this podcast, we've, we've covered Barry McElinden, who's the who covers the investment-grade corporates, which is part of our high-grade theme. We just went over the high yield in terms of how some of these, you know, embedded credit sectors have performed. Now I want to take a look at a sector that's actually the hybrid of both, which is preferred. So now I want to go over to uh, Frank Saleo, and as we know, preferred uh, preferred are on the most preferred within the CIO allocation, and so you know this has been an exciting year for your sector, uh, Frank, as you're well aware. So how would you again just sort of go through your expectation of the first six months' performance, and how did that? What sort of caveats or um, you know pockets of vulnerability did you see that altered that expectation? Yeah, thanks, Leslie. I think you know exciting is is a kind way of putting it. It's been uh, quite a roller coaster ride. It sometimes it feels like uh, we got a year's worth of volatility in just uh, the first six months of this year. But you know, kind of looking back, we came into the year with a more positive outlook on preferreds, or at least at least a more hopeful look, especially a, a hopeful outlook. 
especially after the difficult year we had in 2022. Just as a reminder, you know, last year was the second worst year for preferreds in over three decades, and that was primarily driven by the Fed's most aggressive rate-hiking campaign in 30 years. So coming into this year, we were thinking, you know, valuations look better after last year's losses, plus the rate outlook would probably be improving with the Fed closer to being done with rate hikes. But then, of course, you know, this is where the roller coaster ride came in. During the first half of the year, preferreds got hit first, uh, with, uh, Fed rate expectations going even higher, especially in late January and February. And then the regional banking volatility in March and again in early May that, uh, Barry and, and you and, and, and Kathleen have, have discussed, uh, that of course has an outsized impact on preferreds because most preferreds are actually issued by banks. So while, uh, that banking turmoil in March and again in early May uh, had ripple effects throughout risk assets. They had an even more outsized impact on preferred. So, you know, we thought we were in the clear heading into uh, 2023, but we're confronted with even more headwinds. So looking at returns in the first half, we see this kind of sawtooth pattern uh, in monthly returns that we see from time to time uh, in the sector. Again, sort of a roller coaster ride of monthly returns. We had really big gains in January as investors came in with this sort of hopeful outlook. That was followed by losses in February and March, then gains in April, losses in May, gains in June. So you get the idea, up and down roller coaster type of a ride for preferred investors. And looking at performance so far this month, preferreds have had a bit of a rebound in recent days after a rate-driven pullback in the first week of July when rates surged with the 10-year Treasury yield rising above 4% again. We have had a little bit of a rebound in recent days as rates fell back more recently, although they're uh, a bit higher today, but we've basically taken a round trip for the month of July, and we're now basically flat month to date. So uh, putting this all together on a year-to-date basis, Leslie, preferreds are up by about 3.5%, but the sector is down 4% since the end of February. So although we're up for the year about 3.5%, we're down 4% since the end of February. That reflects the fact that we still haven't fully recovered from that regional banking turmoil we saw in March and again in early May. But, you know, on the other hand, Leslie, that, that means that valuations have improved, and that brings us to where we are today. Yeah, that's, that's great, Frank. And listen, as you know, you know, as we have, you know, it's earnings season, we know that, but, you know, we know that even though there was this really wasn't a banking crisis like we all, you know, know a crisis to be, there's still going to be a spotlight on the sector. And, you know, it's not expected that you're going to have the deposit withdrawal that we saw in March, April, this faucet, but more like a slow drip. So how do you sort of view the next six months in terms of the performance of the sector and those potential pockets pockets of vulnerability, particularly as this lagged impact of the Fed takes hold and just the economy just naturally slows. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think that um, investors have definitely breathed a sigh of relief 
first after the uh, results of the banking stress tests uh, a few weeks back, and now more recently with uh, earnings season underway, and we've heard from the big six money center banks, and now more recently from the regional banks, and uh, it's been better than feared with respect to, you know, expectations were set that there are going to continue to be some headwinds for the banking sector, but they do seem to be uh, manageable, so overall better than feared, and that's been a positive for the preferred sector. But um, looking at where we are now in terms of valuation, that performance choppiness that I alluded to earlier, that's really led to better valuation, and then coupled with an improved rate outlook, we did move, as you mentioned, to a most preferred view on preferred in June. And at this point, again, we think the second half of the year and beyond looks like a better backdrop than for, for preferreds. We're generally seeing really good entry points uh, on an individual security basis with the potential for impressive 12-month returns from here. Keep in mind, most preferreds actually trade at a discount to par right now, and that's something that uh, we haven't seen for over a decade. The vast majority of the sector trades at a discount to par. So what that means is that in addition to the attractive yields that investors can find in the preferred space, yields to the tune of about 6.5% or so, sometimes a little higher in the $1,000 par space, um, but in addition to those yields uh, that you'll get just by clipping the coupon, there is also potential for price appreciation that would make total return or, or yield to call even more attractive. So valuations really look um, pretty uh, pretty impressive here. They look like a support. And the other part of the positive outlook is the rate outlook. Um, we continue to believe we've seen the peak in interest rates. This is something that uh, you've been very uh, vocal about and spot on. Uh, it looks like we've seen the peak in interest rates for this cycle. We haven't uh, surpassed the uh, the highs from last October, and since then we've been range-bound, and that is a better backdrop for preferreds as well. So putting it together between the rate outlook and the valuations, um, it, 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 it looks to, to set up a pretty positive outlook from here. Great, Frank. Thank you. And, and I mean, you did, that was a great conversation discussion too. And I think it goes within a common theme that, that each of you just has discussed in terms of, you know, the next six months and driver total return, how, you know, important that yield is that everyone in fixed income is earning. And not only would a tailwind that yield will be in terms of total return, but also how much that yield earned will actually serve as a really great cushion in terms of any type of or a type of principal protection that we might see from now to the end of the year and into 2024. So, so thank you for that. And now I want to switch it over. I'm saving the best for last. And uh, the uh, person that's on the our first time on the uh, podcast, I'm really happy to have her, um, Sangita, in terms of closed-end funds. And, you know, not only, Sangita, do you have to pay attention to sectors, but there's also a lot of drivers within your sector that um, really uh, – Besides the total return, such as leverage, so I would do. I want to ask you the same type of question that, that I've asked, you know, everyone everyone on this podcast is that let's just start with what the first six months have been for closed end and how that might have differentiated or not differentiated for what you expected entering the year. Sure, thanks for having me, Leslie. Just by way of intro, since this is my first time, closed end funds. The main selling point is the use of leverage and what that does is funds can borrow based on short-term rates, invest in long-term assets, and therefore pay out a much higher distribution 
versus the underlying sectors themselves. So for today's conversation, I want to focus on two major groups since we've also had the muni analysts on this call and the preferred analysts. So starting off with muni funds, we've seen funds down year-to-date uh, roughly 1% to 2%, but this number is a little bit um, little bit misleading because we do have some funds that are down a lot more. In terms of the discounts, the funds are trading at double-digit discounts, on average about 10% on the funds that we cover. Now, the reason for the decline in the funds and why they're trading at big discounts is really goes to the distributions. Year-to-date, since January 1, we've had distribution cuts ranging anywhere from 5% to as much as 45%. Now, if a buyer owns closed-end funds for distribution and they're distributions keep getting cut, that's not positive for the holders, and therefore we've seen a lot of selling in the Muni closed-end funds. Now, Muni funds borrow based off of a SESMA index, which is equivalent of LIBOR for tax-free markets. It stands for Securities Industry Financial Market Association. This index has been going up and down. This week, again, it's a weekly reset. We saw SESMA index move up from 2.2%, to 2.9%. Funds borrow based off this index plus a spread. So the funds borrowing cost has stayed pretty high. And as uh, Kathleen mentioned, 30-year muni bond pays roughly 3.5%. So if you're investing at 3.5%, but your borrowing costs are actually exceeding that return you're getting on the bonds, you are going to see distribution cuts. So that's driving the performance on the muni funds. Moving on to the preferred funds, as Frank discussed in detail, the regional bank crisis did have an impact on the preferred funds as well. However, looking at year-to-date performance, in light of what happened back in March, it's not so bad. Year-to-date funds are up roughly 1% on average. If we look at the distribution cuts on the preferred funds, minimal distribution changes year-to-date. The discounts, on some of the funds are trading at 5 to 6% discounts, but then we also have a few funds at slight premiums. Now, the reason we have not seen big distribution cuts in the preferred funds is because preferred funds, given it's a long-term um, asset, funds do lock in some of their leverage costs using interest rate swaps. As a result, the impact on their dividend is not as much as it was on the muni funds. And therefore, with minimal dis, uh, distribution cuts, even though we did see the financial um, regional bank crisis, funds had exposure of only 5 to 10% in regional banks. So that hasn't impacted uh, the performance as much. Well, great. Thank you. So as we, you know, we heard, you know, Frank and Kathleen, as we talk about sort of, you know, in, in the closing for the muni and the uh, preferred sectors, you know, we've gotten their opinion in terms of the second half of the year and, you know, potential pockets of vulnerability. But when we look at clo- within those sectors, when we look at closed-end funds, you know, what do you think could be the expectation of performance and also those pockets of vulnerability, whether it's leverage or cutting of dividends or what, what kinds of things are you sort of really keeping a close eye on as you think about the performance for the latter part of the year? So as Frank mentioned, we are most preferred on the underlying preferred sector. So first thing, the funds do take cue from what's going on in the underlying sector. So here I think we are positive on the underlying preferred sector. That should help the closed-end funds. In light of distribution changes, 
given that they lock in some of their leverage costs, we shouldn't see much by way of distribution cuts. Never rule out a distribution cut, but I'm not expecting any large cuts. And given the performance of the funds, where we are mostly flat to up slightly, I don't expect much by way of tax loss selling either. On, for the munis, on the other hand, I think the borrowing cost has to come down in order for us to not see much by way of distribution cuts. On average, funds that we cover right now are paying 4.4%. If I go back to January 1, that average distribution rate was 5%. And 5% is what gets people a little bit more excited about coming into the group. It is 5% on a muni tax-free fund, and as Kathleen mentioned, for people living in California, New York, any high-income tax state, that is pretty attractive for earners in the higher income tax bracket. But at this 4.4 level, 4.4%, uh, we're not going to see a lot of new buyers. And given these distribution cuts, in fact, we may also see a lot more tax selling in the muni space versus the preferred fund. So we're still not ready to jump into the muni funds. We've had a pretty neutral view on the leverage funds. We think the non-levered funds will do much better um, because we have not had distribution cuts there. In fact, we've seen some distribution increases. So that's what we think will happen with the munis and the preferreds for the remainder of this year. Well, thank you, Sangeria. I appreciate that, and I and I appreciate everyone taking their time and really sharing their their insights. And I think this is this has been very helpful. And I just wanted to recap sort of our our positioning as to where we are in the second half of the year from a bigger picture standpoint. You know, again, this is not in the second half of the year. We do not expect a large amount of spread compression, whether it's for the higher quality or the credit vetted sectors. This is going to be a performance in the second half of the year that's driven by carry or yield. Our expectation is that the Fed will most likely hike in July, and then we anticipate a higher for longer type of monetary policy, which the market has now uh, shifted to as well. So because of that higher for longer, we do anticipate the yield curve to remain inverted. Um, it might be less inverted than what it is today, but it will remain inverted. And because of that inversion, we stick with the barbell approach where we can earn that, you know, you know, carry in the short end, have that capital preservation, but also, you know, lock in longer opportunistically, you know, due to the fact that the credit cycle is maturing and growth is going to slow. It doesn't have to be a hard landing, but growth will more than likely still, you know, come in well below trend. So we do want to lock in some of that, uh, you know, interest rate risk, if you will, around that 7 to 10 year. You know, again, we're going to stick with the higher quality. We believe that volatility will decline in the second half of the year. Um, but also, unfortunately, when we think about 2024, you know, there is a big divergence into what the Fed has dictated of only easing 100 basis points to what the market is currently priced in, which is about 150. So what this tells me is that you know, the data will dictate, and we're still going to have these short-term bouts of volatility, even though volatility will overall decline. And it's best during those kind of, you know, scenarios, particularly given how tight spreads are, to stay in higher quality, to be opportunistic, and to not chase the markets. So, again, thanks, everyone, for, for being on this podcast, and I look forward to being on in another month. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. 
As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.